My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Hello, hello, hello. Um, this is the Subversive Podcast. I am Alex Kashuta, and today joining me is Mary Harrington, a writer and columnist for Unheard, and probably one of the best voices that I know of in, in terms of commenting on, on the endless gender wars, on feminism, and on what's going on today with whatever's going on between women and men. Welcome, Mary. Hi, Hi Alex. Um, the first question that I have is one that has been plaguing me for a while. Um, what is reactionary feminism? Is it mostly reactionary or is it feminism or why? Well, it kind of started as a running joke with a friend who's been trying to convince me that post-liberals are just reactionaries who refuse to inhale. Um, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> which is, it's, it's not a, it's, it's a possibility I have not yet discounted. Although I have I have some questions about that as well, so so reactionary feminism. But but I thought about it and I thought, well, um, in, I've I've always thought of myself as a feminist. Um, but as time has gone on and I've I've got further into my life and further into motherhood and further into marriage and just into thinking about the relations between men and women and the political dimension of that at the larger scale, I've come to the conclusion that. Um, the progressive view has some shortcomings um, and more, more broadly um, I came to the conclusion that really I just don't believe in progress mm. and that makes it you know there are and, the, and I, I sort of bounced that off an argument which recurs within feminism more generally for example in Jessica Valenti's recent article where she states that it's not possible to be conservative and a feminist and, and I thought about that and I thought well she's kind of right in the sense that um, conservatism is really just about doing progress a bit more slowly. You know, these are people standing athwart history yelling stop. You know, <laughs> they, they essentially want the same, the same kind of liberal, liberal things as um, the progressives do. They just, they just like it to happen a bit more slowly and a bit more respectfully to tradition. Um, but what, if, what happens then if you, want, if you want to advocate for women's interests and you just don't believe in progress full stop? Um, yes. You can't really describe yourself as a conservative because that's that's not what you're doing. You're trying to you're trying to look at what 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 does what constitutes women's interests outside the rubric of progress altogether. And I thought, well, <laughs> you know, given once you're into that territory, you're going to get called a reactionary whether you like it or not. So I think I, I figured I might as well just own it. So it's kind of a joke. It's kind of it's kind of internet irony, but it also has a serious dimension to it as well. Yes, well, I, I think I think you. I can definitely relate to that. And I, I mean, in, in any sense of the word, if this is what we're calling it, that's probably where I, what I would identify with. I'm not a conservative in any modern sense. I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm a return traditionalist if in any way that is possible with the V, of course. Um, so. <laughs> well, welcome to reactionary feminism. Exactly. I mean, if, if this is if this is the movement, yeah, count me in. 
Um, I've um, I've seen uh, some comments of yours on the nature of childhood uh, and kind of how childhood's been reinterpreted through the modern lens of it being something that has to be completely constrained by the adult world with play dates, with, you know, extreme over-socialization, helicopter parenting, and this kind of medicalization of, of how we, how we raise children, this expert-led push to, to raise them in a, in a very regimented way. Um, and I know you're a mother and you know how to do this. Um, what, what is wrong with this approach? Is it, is it, um, is it kind of an exaggerated form of, uh, of safetyism? Well, I think there are, the first thing I should say about this is that actually in practice as a parent, as a mother, it's very, very difficult to avoid this. I mean, some of the some of what we think of as helicopter parenting and sort of over socialization, safetyism and so on is is more an effect of what the modern world looks like is, is, is as much an effect of the modern world. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to let your four year old go out and play in the street if there are no other four if there are no other mums around with with four year olds at home. Um, so there's no one for her to play with. And also the street is full of cars, some of whom come down at 30, 40 miles an hour. Um, so, you know, what it's, it's, it's easy to frame that as safetyism, but actually, to a significant extent, what's going on is more structural and is part of a much bigger sociocultural and economic picture. Um, and I should also say that it's very difficult to, or nigh on impossible, short of radically homeschooling, taking a sort of parenting Benedict option kind of an approach, which is, which is not where I am. Um, it's very, it, you, you cannot raise your child out with um, prevailing social norms. So, you know, a great deal of what, what I might critique as overparenting, if you like, is also very difficult to avoid in practice. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm to a significant extent complicit in that because I, I can't not be short of, short of going, going and living off grid in the hills, which creates its own problems. Um, but I think, you know, zooming out to the, to the sort of cultural level, I think part of what's going on is, um, is, is a fundamental crisis in our understanding of authority and what, what constitutes legitimate political authority. Um, you might say that that's a big sledgehammer to crack a walnut of, you know, parenting. But, but to my eye, you know, the debate all, I mean, one of, one of my sort of fundamental theses um, is is that all 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 the major political debates can be found in parenting debates? The stuff that people that mums argue about on parenting message boards is the same stuff that's being played out at the macro scale in politics. Mm -hmm. So the argument about baby led weaning, um, you know, whether or not you should spoon feed your baby or or give them a range of a range of easily chewable foods that they can mash and throw around, you know that the. That question is mirrored, for example, in the question of whether or not riots should be constrained or responded to. Mm. I mean, I'm sure you can see the analogy. Certainly, you know, should we? Yeah. Not all riots. So, right, exactly. And that question again is political. Um, you know, why why some riots and not others? Why why some misbehaviour in your child and not others? All of these questions are political, but in a, in essence, it's the same question at the big and the small scale. You know, mm. to what extent do we follow the emergent desires of a baby or of a crowd? Um, which emergent desires are or aren't acceptable, which should be, which, which face the ban hammer, which ones don't, you yeah. know, that's, that, that's the terrain of politics, but under, underpinning all of that, there's, there's a deep anxiety about whether it's ever acceptable to impose top-down authority, and in, in whose name, on the basis of which moral norms, exactly. uh, because, you know, we have, a, we have a kind of dramatic convention which says that there are no legitimate moral norms, 
Yes, uh, and yeah, extreme form of Rousseau that's been right, infiltrating exactly. every exactly. aspect of our lives. Exactly, yeah. and you know, it's, and, and I mean, the, the the liberals grasp the parallel between between politics and parenting. I mean, if you, you know, both John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote extensively about how to raise children. In fact, they were the ones who who pioneered um, the modern modern parenting manuals. So it, in, a, in, in a sense, the, found, the foundations of modern post-enlightenment liberalism are inseparable from the foundations of expert-led parenting, as opposed yeah. to parent, parents being left to follow their own judgment or the advice of their grandparents. Exactly. And there's this uh, kind of this sacralization of the, of the natural, this romanticism about human nature that, that seems to me to be at the core of all of this, the idea yes. that, you know, if civilization is what corrupts, but uh, in the absence of civilization, people would just be nice to each other. And I think anyone who's lived outside of the outside of the, um, the the safetyism knows that that is not true. And I feel like someone coming from Eastern Europe and, you know, I've, I've kind of seen the seen the, the dark face of man in many interactions while I was I was growing up. And it was clear that the, the dividing line was between the people who had been civilized and the people who didn't, just didn't get the chance to, to be, go through the process to to be de-rousseaued. De um, and it's 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 quite shocking to see that people just don't maybe they just haven't had you know the hands-on experience to see that you know the default setting of people is quite barbaric and the default setting of children by by you know by default is a little bit yeah, barbaric yeah. as well yeah I mean, to my eye anybody who has eyes a functioning brain and small children um, gets that you can't just leave them to resolve all conflicts by themselves yeah but fewer and fewer people are having small children i think that's also and they ha yes. they're having them later and later so you know they just miss yes. out on this uh, on this foundational experience of of being alive and they can you know nurse these uh, these fantasies for longer and i think that's probably feeding this political radicalism as well absolutely i think you're you're spot on about that you know it's it's much easier to maintain the delusion about the you know the fundamental innocence of childhood um and about the fundamental niceness of people um, if you if you only have say one or two children, um, and you and you only introduce them, you know, and you get you see them in contact with other children in carefully stage managed playdates of say ninety minutes at a time, um, and especially if if you haven't really even really got to that point until your political ideal ideology is well solidified in your mid thirties, um, and 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 you're just not you're 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 not in a position to watch your children just kind of figuring things out for themselves and it, you, you can probably argue i mean my, my my position is also very much that the the first generation of the children who've been raised like this you know in these carefully stage managed play dates and you know with carefully managed interpersonal conflicts all the way through their childhood are also now coming to young adulthood and i think that it's, it's not a coincidence that we're also seeing a falling away of um faith in and, and ability to survive the conflict which is intrinsic to democratic debate as in people people are forever tearing their hair saying oh you know why are the young so so authoritarian you're like why are you even surprised considering you've been stage managing their interpersonal conflicts for the first 21 years of their lives and you send them off to college and demand that their colleges must stage manage their interpersonal conflicts all the way through college and then they then they pop out into adult life and you're surprised that they're a bit authoritarian what were you expecting yeah, and it's the the authoritarianism of their childhood is not is not the strong hand of the patriarch. It's this weird therapy type of authoritarianism that's quite um, 
even even chaotic in a way you don't really know what to expect it's kind of the you know the devouring mother stage managing you rather than you know there are 10 rules respect these 10 rules or else you know it's it's all quite ambiguous and i feel like maybe um even just the absence of that maybe creates a, a bit of a void that that children want to play act when they when they get to college and say no no we need something a little bit more stronger this this magic is too weak so maybe they're they're kind of filling in the uh, the authoritarian void there yeah perhaps perhaps i mean i think um, one of the one of the things that came that i realized sort of when my child was not even not even very old but you know as soon as she was old enough to have some kind of will and agency of her own which is to say i don't know you know less than a year old but certainly by the time by the time she got to toddlerhood is that um gentleness and persuasion is not always enough um and actually it's irresponsible to try and to try and parent and to try and mother purely based on gentleness and persuasion um, because there are there are times when, especially if you're looking at an incredibly an extremely distressed young child, in fact, they're not able to contain and regulate their emotions on their own because they just don't have the cognitive maturity. And if when you're confronted with that situation, your response is to say, well, what do you want? You're only going to make it worse. Yeah, because they fact, don't what's, know. What's, they don't know. They don't know. And not only that, but they're, they're so beside themselves at that point that they, they wouldn't be able to articulate it even if they did know. And the, in fact, the, the most responsible, the kindest thing you can do at that point is to say, okay, here's what's going to happen now. And then you make it happen. Mm -hmm. and that, that is the swiftest and most compassionate way to contain what's actually an incredibly frightening and distressing situation for a very, very young child. And I think there are, there are parallels. I mean, I've practiced as a psychotherapist as well. And there are, there are parallels in that situation too, where you know I've, I've I've experienced a client coming to me who's extremely uncontained, who's who's very distressed, who's perhaps sort of spinning out in a kind of traumatic fugue state, and in those situations, um, asking them to explore their feelings is not appropriate. What you need to do is to set gently but firmly a set of boundaries that they can push against. And you know, again, one one of the things, one of the phenomena um, that's that's really characterised this you know, there's some, a lot of these uprisings over the last year, to me, has a lot of the character of a, a hysterical child acting out desperately, asking for somebody to push back mm. and to provide some containment and some boundaries. Um, I think, you know, there are the, these disturbances are multifactorial. You know, there are, there's the, there is, there are legitimate grievances in there. There are economic insecurities, you know, it's a very complex situation, but I think certainly as far as the, the middle-class children who are acting out in the middle of it all sort of LARPing if you like this, mm -hmm. this kind of revolutionary fervor I think a great deal of it comes down to desperately seeking some sort of some sort of boundary some sort of containment which is less less along in the sort of devouring mother yes um, and and you can see and more yeah you, you can see how how disrespectful these these you know children essentially get when they don't get pushback it's you know I think it was um, videos from Evergreen and there there are a few instances in colleges where this was filmed where they were berating the administrators and the administrators didn't know where to put their hands or, or they were you know controlling their their body language and it was just it was just you know very um, I don't know it, it it reminded me of you know the the Cultural Revolution and just the, the humiliation that they they had to inflict upon these people just because there was no pushback. They weren't even trying. What's, what's really, what's really difficult is that you know this, this sort of um, this screaming for boundaries is occurring at the heart of a culture where it's 
people routinely say, oh, it's not my, I, I don't have the right to tell anybody else what to do. What right do we have to tell anybody else what to do? And when you when you apply that to children, you know, what you end up with is child-led parenting, which is to say, you know, what right do I as a parent have to tell my child what to do? My, my child as an individual knows what's best for them. Mm. Um, and and it's, it's my job to facilitate that. Um, I, I respectfully disagree. There are times when my child does not know what's best for her because she's four. It's my, it's my duty to tell her what's best for her because I'm her mother. <laughs> there was a funny a funny situation like that not long ago where you know my there's my, my daughter who, who's now four and um, she's she's grubby as as you'd expect with a four year old she's she's bath the bath is run you know she's all ready to get in it and she she suddenly announces I don't want to have a bath and I say well you're having a bath and she <laughs> says well you can't make me and I said well actually yes I can and I picked her up and I put her in the bath. <laughs> Well, that's, you know, that's, I think that's a gentle authority because, you know, the, the consequences of her not taking a bath for too long. Are, are just... Right, exactly. You know, I think, but, but well, my, the, the broader point to be made from this, I mean, aside from it just being a funny story, um, the, the broader point to be made from this is that, um, in my view, um, asserting authority is inseparable from being willing, being comfortable with the idea of making positive statements about moral norms. If you if you don't have any confidence in your ability to make positive statements about norms, you cannot legitimately occupy an authoritative position. Yes. So, you know, I, I have no no qualms whatsoever about making authoritative statements in favor of personal hygiene. You know, it's a, you know, that's that, that, that's not a difficult one, but there are much more ambiguous areas where you'll be called as a parent to make those sorts of authoritative statements about moral norms. And if you abdicate that in favor of letting the child lead, in my view, you're not doing the child any favors. Um, I mean, it's, it's, there, is a, there is always a delicate dance to be, to be done between, you know, allowing a child to explore for themselves and, you know, and making those kinds of pronouncements. But it's, it's certainly my view that actually they're asking for those pronouncements. You yes. know, and, and, and it's also true that you cannot avoid making them. Even if you think you're not making them, you're making them. You yes. know, whether you like it or not, you will, you will, you'll be installing a moral operating system in your child because they come in need, you know, they come, they come with some, they, they come with whatever they come with, but, but they expect from their parents um, a, set of, a set of general statements about the moral norms. Mm. Um, so you're, you're in a position where you, that is unavoidable and you might as well make a, uh, a, a thoughtful decision about which of those operating systems you're planning to install. Exactly. And is it, is it possible to install this operating system if every other institution in your culture is pulling into the other direction? Um, and I guess, you know, after a certain point, your child will have to integrate with peers rather than be part of, you know, the, the family structure. That's going to be their tendency. That's, that's all children, you know, want to separate from the nest at one point. Will the original system be enough to, to, to hold back the, the well, ravages? I, of I don't think anybody really knows that. Um, you know, do you, and, and it's certainly true that once your kid is over, I don't know, probably two or three at the absolute most, um, you know, there's a, there's a limited, very limited extent to which your you as your you have control over over what it is that they absorb. I mean, just taking taking consumption of media, for example. Um, you know, I know there are parents who radically constrain their their kids' consumption, for example, of Hollywood movies, um, and there's there, there's a strong case to be made for that. Um, I'm not I'm not quite as extreme about that, but I do sometimes wince at the sort of high level messages that I see being internalized from, for example, the Disney um, corpus, which which, to, you know, to, to my mind, certainly, you know, invites some invites some questions. 
you know, you can be anything you want to be. I don't think that's true, but that's that's the central message of you know much of the Disney corpus. Um, but but against that, I don't really think there's anything much that you can do apart from to lead by example and to be to make some thoughtful decisions about about what stories you you intentionally offer your child. I mean, I'm 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 unabashed about um, teaching the Bible stories to my daughter because I think it's wildly irresponsible for a child growing up to, for a parent of a child growing up in the West to have her to have her illiterate about that. Mm. You know, scriptural literacy is a fundamental fundamental building block of cultural literacy in the in the entire Western canon. And you know, as, as somebody who's with a deep love of canonical Western literature myself, um, I I read English and I. I I read widely. Um, I, th I think it's incredibly irresponsible. I, I grew up without scriptural literacy and had to teach it to myself as an adult. That's a pain in the ass. If you grow, if if you have it baked in from the word go, then your your streets ahead. You know, further further down the line, you know, she'll get the Greek, the the ancient Greek. The, you know, she'll get the classical mythology, um, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff, which is just fundamental building blocks. And to to an extent, that's all you really can do. So that teach you know teach the teach the basics, teach good manners, teach. Yeah. Um, model that stuff at home and the interaction of that with the wider culture is is inevitably going to be unpredictable and you just and short of going full sort of parenting benedict option that's really all you can do you know yeah. these are you know uh, hyper liberalism of the water that we all swim in and i think we kind of just have to roll with that exactly and by giving your child the the building blocks you're you're putting them you know leagues ahead of of everyone else and i feel like maybe what's going on in colleges right now is also the result of people not giving a few generations uh their their building blocks because it's almost impossible to teach the western canon without having the the basics without you know understanding the bible understanding you know greek mythology um and if someone were to read even you know Shakespeare at the moment, a your your average or even your your more educated uh, high school senior will not understand it because just the illusions and metaphors, everything baked into the cake is absolutely foreign. Um, and maybe that's why you know uh, partly radicalism has taken over the institutions because there's nothing else to teach except critique, and there's no other lens to internalize than the one that uh, that Disney has offered about empowerment. Um, yeah, I think there's a great deal of truth in that. I mean, one of the things I graduated from university some time ago, I'm 41 now, so I graduated in 2002, which is just when, you know, the current iteration of madness was arguably all just kicking off with the, you know, the Twin Towers and the Iraq War. And that was when, that was when reality really started to go strange, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, something something which has happened since I, I remember encountering critical theory at university alongside being frog marched fairly straightforwardly through the entire English literary canon from Beowulf onwards, um, you know, at a, at a fair pace and with some gaps. But I got a decent sense of the outlines of it. And uh, I'll be I'll, I'll never regret having taken the time to do that. Um, but well, one of the things that really struck me about critical theory, as it was then taught, was that it was not yet separable from um, canonical literacy itself, as in, you know, you're expected to be able to deconstruct, but you're also expected to have read the texts, you know, whereas the, what's happened since, which is so very strange, is that it's come on moored even from lit, from any kind of meaningful literacy in the, in the canon, which it emerged out of. And it's sort of spiraled free into a kind of, you know, dis, you know, Un ungrounded, unrooted sort of criticism of everything 
such that you know it's a, it's a sort of free floating free floating kind of deconstructive impulse which says no actually we, everything all, all all forms of meaning whether they're social or cultural or or whatever are fair game for being dismantled and there's no corresponding um effort or desire or um, attempt to build anything up to replace it and and i feel like that's the moment we're in and we're, we're at the point where pretty much any any social meaning you care to name has been radically liquefied by this impulse and it's it's not yet clear at all what's going to be rebuilt out of out of the remainder because it's but it's also clear to me that we can't not rebuild something yes absolutely and i think um it's 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 a primarily western affectation uh, i mean it's seeping into into eastern europe as well as we speak because we're we're kind of a wannabe west uh and still very aspirational <laughs> to to get in line um but you know i think in countries like china you know this type of moral relativism is is less is less uh, prevalent or it's not it's not dominant it might be you know it might be kind of an intellectual affectation but because they don't really uh care about intellectuals as much as we do they don't really um they don't really implement it as, as strongly um i'm i'm curious to see if the pressure surrounding the west will kind of you know make people uh, toughen up a little bit uh, and and kind of get, regain confidence. I mean, there's, there's obviously, I know a lot of sections of the internet and sections of the world where this is happening and people are, you know, fighting for Western civilization and trying to be confident about it. Um, but in general, it's it's not a mainstream phenomenon. And I'm curious to see if it um, if it ever will be. Um, what's, what's your feeling on this? Well, it's as it's it's probably too early to tell, but um, one one possibility which I was discussing recently with for 2021, especially in the light of the just very recent QAnon invasion of mm -hmm. Washington, um, is that um, a culture which up until now has seen mass movements as axiomatically good. Um, may start to reconsider that position in favor of you know sometimes top-down authority being possibly not quite as axiomatically bad as we thought you know i was i mean it's been it's been palpable um how differently this this recent mass uprising was received to all of the disturbances over last summer you know it's 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 not original to point that out um but what but I was thinking about that and I was thinking about, you know, the kinds of people who are, who are applying that double standard and thinking, well, you know, from, from the point of view of your average sort of normie mainstream liberal, you've been raised on a diet of movies and media content and stories and a, a cultural output, which, which sees mass cultural uprisings as liberatory and good. Mm -hmm. um, and then suddenly one comes along, which, which actually contradicts that view for you you know the black lives matter uprisings last summer they look they look liberatory they look like the good guys you know so especially well, as long as you look past all of those um somali heritage shop fronts burning in minneapolis um you know that that was that was all good stuff that was liberation right mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden a bunch of guys come along that you're used to thinking of as the bad guys and they're also doing a mass uprising and you're like hang on a minute maybe this whole mass uprising thing isn't act doesn't actually come with baked in moral content and mm -hmm. at that point, it's possible. It's just possible. I don't know yet, um, but it's just possible that we we might see we, we might see even people who have hitherto been unquestioningly liberal um, starting to tilt back 
um, and ask and ask whether or not it's a possibility that you know authority there might actually be a role sometimes for authority um, within a functioning society. And you know what will come of that again is too early to say. Um, yeah, this, because, this uh, year has been full of black pills for everyone. It has, it has, but because there's also loops back to the question of you know what 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 does authority look like in the absence of make being willing to make positive statements about moral norms and the answer is not not very nice exactly so if you have a bunch of liberals who's who've till who are tilting back in favor of authority but they're also still reluctant to make any statements about moral norms what you have then is an authoritarianism which is based on pure power and that 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 is not the that's not a world i want to live in but it may be the world that we end up living in in 2021 exactly uh, again it's too early to tell yeah i think one thing that uh, 2020 has taught me is that we're we're led by a bit of a you know mysterious cabal of unaccountable managers in you know in a stratification that's like 15 layers deep and no one really knows what's going on there is no you know even when you need top down control it can't be exercised but it is concentrated so it's uh it's it's quite a, a shocking turn um and and in the in the area of having um, moral direct moral and clear moral norms, um, I know you've commented on the um, the porn censorship um, scandals that have been surrounding, especially Pornhub, um, after the famous uh, New York Times article about uh, about abuses on the on the website. Um, and you're um, not a sex positive feminist. And I'm not good <laughs> and um uh you're also pro well let me let me rephrase that i'm not i'm not a pro prostitution feminist i mm -hmm. mean sex is great sex is really nice yeah uh, sex for money i i think is bad yes exactly. i mean yeah I, I can only echo that but um porn censorship porn is also a bit of a gray area because people say oh it's, it's not really prostitution i mean only only in the strictest sense is, is it not um and there's also the the kind of the complicating factor of only fans which is kind of just this kind of one unilateral type uh, interaction where it's very low touch it's a, a bit bourgeois compared to compared to your average, average streetwalker so there's all sorts of things in the in the in the panoply of uh, of whatever is pornography nowadays um I personally, I've made several arguments about why I don't think the normalization of this is is useful. Um, why do you think that porn censorship is is warranted? Well, there are there are several points where you could start with that question. Um, the first one, the first one, I suppose, would be because living people are involved in producing it. Now, there, I suppose, you'd have to distinguish between written erotica or drawn erotica, and um, erotica and porn, which is produced, you know, photographs or move or videos taken of actual human beings. And if, uh, in my view, if you're going to have pornography at all, um, it, it should not, you know, live individuals should not be used in creating it. Hmm. You know, so I mean, if, if I were to make any kind of a compromise at all, I would say it's a little bit like cruelty free cosmetics. <laughs> um, you know, you should, it's. I, I, I think it's. I, I think it's fundamentally morally grotesque to ask actual living individual humans to play act um, the sex act um, for the titillation of uh, others who they've never even come across. But Mary, it's it's free will. These are these are consenting adults. Consent is a very grey area. I think. <laughs> 
you know, there's I, there are other other more sophisticated intelligences than mine have have done a pretty good job of pointing a, a fairly thorough job of dismantling this idea of you know the the wholly autonomous, the wholly independent individual subject, and the idea that consent is consent is morally adequate as as a as a benchmark for whether or not. Um, somebody should be participating in something like that. I mean, I, I, I watched with great interest the interview Unheard Freddie Sayers did on Unheard with Ayala, the OnlyFans superstar, where she said, you know, it's it's possible to do this for a living and not be dying inside. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy to take her at her word that she's not dying inside. Although saying that she did, she did also post some stats from her personal health tracker not long afterwards, where she listed the, the, the amount of time she spends on benzodiazepines, which, which um, raised for me some questions about, you know, what dying inside actually would look like for her. Um, but le leaving, leaving that aside, you know, I think it's all very well it's all very well saying it's possible to do this without dying inside. Um, but it's also wildly irresponsible if you are one of the outlier personalities who's able to do that without dying inside, you know, to generalize, to normalize that situation for a bunch of people who may find themselves economically with no, with very few other potential career choices and without that personality. So, you know, just because it's all right for you, to put it another way, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be all right for other people. And I think ALO, Ayala to me looks like one of the winners of social liberalism, a little bit like the hedge fund managers are the winners of economic liberalism. And in, a, in essence, you know, they, they, they just don't give a shit about the trail of destruction they leave behind them, you know, in hollowed out industrial communities and um, small businesses going bankrupt while the profits are funneled up, upwards into BlackRock or whoever. And, I, and to me, I, I see people, people like Ayala, the winners of social liberalism as something, something analogous. Um, Exactly. Know, they, they're, they're just not looking at what it's like for the little guy who may not possess their psychological advantages and they just prefer not to look yeah and they they, they close themselves in the in the essentially the excuse of, of consent this you know this big uh, this this only moral uh, trigger that we have left in and how we deal with people and how we yeah how we kind of essentially administer morality in society was it consensual good perfect yeah Move, right, move and I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical about the the idea that the the end of the human subject is quite as sort of um, autonomous as all of that. Anyway, I mean, this is this is this is something which you know post structuralism does a particularly good job of dismantling. And as such, I find it strange that most of the you know sort of um, postmodernism 2.0 um, has has come round fully to embracing this idea of radical individualism and you know consent being an adequate rubric for absolutely everything. Um, in a context where, you know, the postmodernism 1.0 was all about deconstructing the subject as, uh, as a plausible, um, as, as a convenient fiction. Yeah. So, you know, if the, if, if we're deconstructing the subject as a convenient fiction, you know, shouldn't we problematize, shouldn't we be problem problematizing the idea of consent, not, not reifying it as the, as the ground zero for absolutely everything. I mean, this is probably a bit of a digression from pornography, but I mean, it's, it, it supports one of one of my other theses, which is that postmodernism 2.0, which is which has been sort of popularized as wokeism, is not in fact postmodern at all. You know, James Lindsay and the rest of them are mistaken about that. It's not postmodernism. It's the last. It's the last stand of high modernism. Exactly. Yeah, that's you know, and also I think postmodernism has kind of gotten this uh, this vibe. I mean, I I love Jordan Peterson, but he has been the the, the primary kind of the the first mover on on you know 
um, on taking postmodernism to be this this singularity that you know something something happened in the '60s and it was it was the, from then on the course of liberalism, which is pure and and you know and holy, uh, yes. has changed and you know the, this mind virus has infected the academia. Well, maybe if you trace it back to the Reformation, but yeah. not to the '60s. So it's um, it's it's been it's quite a meme, but I also agree it's it's definitely not uh, not the first thing. Yeah, but one of the one of the most acute analysts of this, to my eye, is Jeff Schulenberger, um, who 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 writes as outsider theory, um, who's who's just one of the fantastic rare um, writers who who's both incredibly incredibly well informed on theory and also able to write it and do theory um, without disappearing up his own button in prose in terms of prose style. He's, he's been a, on this podcast. It's not released. He yet, has. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Fantastic. I'm, I'm very pleased to hear it. He's he's his writing is I'm a massive fan. And his his analysis, his read of um, Pluckrose and Lindsay's book, Cynical Theories, I, I found um, very illuminating in that um, he put, he points out that an actually materialist analysis of the emergence of theory um, su suggests that it's not just something which sort of popped into existence mysteriously in the 1960s, but in fact develops out of um, social and cultural conditions which have, you know, including the development of science, all of which have, have worked to undermine, you know, our, our faith in grand meta-narratives to the point where, you know, ju just complaining about the undermining of faith in grand meta narratives is not going to do anything to change the fact that nobody really believes in them anymore. Exactly. And that the fact that, you know, Leotard and, and most of postmodernists were were dis descriptive rather than prescriptive. They are they yeah. were chroniclers of phenomena that were happening already, rather than being the people saying, hmm, wouldn't it be nice if we thought about things this way? Well, people were already thinking yeah. about them yeah. that way. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, the only other thing that I wanted to discuss with you was the um, was LARPing essentially. Oh. Well, <laughs> I mean, the, the loss of faith in grand meta narratives kind of brings us nicely to that point, doesn't it? Exactly. You know, the, the world according to LARP. Mm -hmm. um, this is there's something this is something which I found really interesting. Um, the the escape of the word LARP from being something which geeks do at the weekend to being a being a this kind of Probably, I think the the defining political metaphor of 2020, and it's showing it's showing great promise so far for 2021 as well. Exactly. Yeah, I think you know the nobody's ever um, expressed a political opinion on the internet recently without being accused of larping in, in some ah, way. Yes. Well, and I mean, it's you know these these guys who just broke into the Capitol in Washington. Um, you know, they got into Nancy Pelosi's office and they couldn't think of anything else to do apart from sit in her chair and pretend to make phone calls. And I think that's that that speaks volumes about about, well, different kinds of political power, among other things, you know, because sure, you know, it, it takes it, it. It speaks of a certain kind of political power to be able to break into the capital full stop, you know, as part of a mob. But it's another kind of political power altogether. You know, once you're in Nancy Pelosi's office to pick up the phone and know who to call. And to have that person take your call. That's a very different kind of political power. And you know, there's this slippage between um, a sort of mediated appearance of doing something or even a mediated appearance of power and you know the nature of the you know and what's real, or indeed, you know, what's what's what constitutes actual power, I think is 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 the terrain of politics now. 
And perhaps this comes back to the question which I was wrestling with before about, you know, how and on what basis we can we, we feel comfortable making definitive moral pronouncements. You know, is, is it just about pure power or, you know, is there anything actually substantive underneath the, oper the, the interactions and the operations and the contests for who has power, you know, that that can ground whatever the whatever pronouncements and whatever whatever we make or whatever conclusions we come to you know is is there anything real out there i think that's that's really the question which absolutely everybody is wrestling with and in as much as but but we're doing this against a background of you know more and more of us especially under lock, lockdown being confined to our to our rooms and experiencing the world through little screens and you know the back and forth of argument on twitter or wherever yeah um, so you know ev even as we get more and more desperate to find to to get a sense of you know what is actually real underneath all of that and i don't you know for for people who've died of coronavirus or, or just lost their jobs and are facing being evicted from their apartments you know the the idea that there's nothing real out there is obviously bollocks yeah um, yes. there's definitely but, a, a big fracturing of reality um for the people who can afford to have reality fractured and don't have to live in base reality who are not the the couriers and the, the people you know on the ground moving things in physical meat space um yes and i think absolutely yeah they're they're probably the only people not larping because they're not living in, in hyper reality they're you know if you if i'm a, an uber driver i'm an uber driver there's not really much larping involved but if you're if your main world is hyper reality the hyper reality of working from home of having everything delivered then you know yeah you're, you're probably larping because it's uh you know you're you're already living in, in a simulation of your own choosing right but you know it's but but it's equally true that you know the in within the LARP there are other kinds of there are other kinds of real emerging you know but because it's not as if it's not as if the cultural domain um, has zero impact on what's actually real I mean it's you, you only have to look at the way at the way the the domain of LARP you know I mean, we can we can call it LARP world as opposed mm -hmm. to um, courier world for the sake of argument you, you only have to look at the way LARP world managed to force um, a sort of moral panic, which drove which drove for the first, then the second, then the third lockdown in the United Kingdom, to see that actually, you know, LARP world, LARP world has very direct effects on courier world. Um, so it, it's not as it's not as though um, the hyper real has it, it, it. It's not as though it's wholly unmoored from having having real world impacts, if you like. I mean, I suppose you could take political propaganda as another example. Of, of of where where these kinds of reality intersect i mean i i follow with i follow a number of chinese state twitter accounts with some interest um because it's uh, the, the 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 intensifying competition between the american larp and the chinese larp is one which interests me and there's only perhaps perhaps the question which the most fundamental question which has preoccupied me for most of my adult life is at what point does a larp stop being a larp and just become what it is Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's been a it's been a sort of central contention of the American dream for for a very long time. You know, long long before anybody invented the internet. That um, if you if you believe in your dreams hard enough and you and you work at it hard enough, eventually those dreams will come true. I mean, again, you know, that's that's the entire Disney corpus. Um, you know, if you LARP hard enough, it will stop being a LARP and it will just become what is. And there's a, there's a degree of truth to that. 
Yeah, especially with with American imperial hegemony, it it, it used to be true that, and I yeah. think it, it continues to be true at least for a while that you know what happens in America is you know the the, the main LARP and then it trickles down to the to the sub LARPs wherever <laughs> wherever else you you might find yourself. Yeah, and it's highly probable that you know, that will that will continue to be at least at least partly true. But I mean, if you but then you look at um, you, you look at the European Union, which just recently concluded its investment treaty with China, you know, in something of a rush ahead of the Biden administration coming in. And, and you, you, you can see. You can see fraying at the edges of that hegemonic power. Uh, the, another another thing which happened almost concurrently with that piece of news just a couple of days ago, which really struck me, was an op-ed in The New York Times saying, well, what about the Chinese interpretation of freedom? What about the freedom to go about your daily business in, in, in a state of physical health? You know, they might not have freedom from political violence and they might not have freedom of speech, but at least they're not getting sick. Oh, and you're God. thinking, well, isn't I, so, you know, it, isn't that a kind of freedom too? And I thought, my goodness, you know, it, and what it, what it made me think of was, was the character, you know, the character Captain Moreno in the film Casablanca, which I watched again over Christmas when he says, he, he says to Rick at one point, I blow with the wind. I have no principles. I blow with the wind. And right now the prevailing wind blows from Vichy. And I was thinking, well, you know, there's a, there's a substantial proportion of the elite, um, which is, which is now more transnational than it is, um, than it is affiliated to a political community as such, you know, that, that takes very much that view. And I think it's, 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 it's extremely significant that, that somebody at the New York Times should have thought should should have sensed a shift in the prevailing winds to such an extent as to have published an op-ed like that, and particularly for it to have received no blowback, like for example, Senator Tom Cotton's op-ed did last summer, when he suggested mm -hmm. bringing in the army to quell the Black Lives Matter riots. Yes, exactly, and it's it's interesting to see it from from the other perspective uh, as well, because uh, you know the Chinese uh, state uh, propaganda machine is churning out some some quite um, spicy takes <laughs> recently. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So yes. one of their most recent tweets was um, a reframing of the of the Uyghur sterilization campaign they've been engaging with uh, you know fervently in the last uh, year as um, female empowerment liberation uh, as um, providing women trapped in a totalitarian um, you know mindset um, the tools to, to free themselves and maybe just stop having children um, <laughs> it was quite an, an interesting way to, to frame it and I think it, it tapped into liberal sense sensibilities um, yeah it, it's it, a it's it's a spicy it, it, it's a spicy reinterpretation of something which is generally left unstated in at least one strand of liberal feminism, which is to say um, a, a belief that female reproductive biology is is oppressive, you know, and, and that in as much as women can be can be liberated at all, that means being liberated from our biology. I mean, this is it's not the only strand of feminism. You know, feminism is a, is an enormously diverse and very um, internally contentious movement. Yeah. But but baked in baked into feminism, pretty much from the word go, has been this question of controlling women's fertility and the interaction between women between women's fertility, our fertility, and the question of individual freedom. Because it's it's true, you know. There's an anecdote that I come back to a lot is the fact that Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, one of the founders of modern liberalism, 
forced his mistress to send all six of the children he fathered on her to an orphanage because he didn't want to be a father. And, you know, and this, this against the backdrop of um, 18th century orphanages where the, the survival rate was less than 50%. He just, he just felt like that was the right thing to do. And he, didn't, he never really gave it much thought. Um, but, you know, in a sense, in a sense, he was, and Rousseau also excluded women from, from his ideal picture of the liberal subject. We were supposed to be charming, compliant, support humans, while the liberal subject was male. Um, and one of one of the things I've I've said recently is that actually you know you can from from a slightly provocative perspective you could argue that Rousseau is actually right, um, and that you know it is much more it, it is difficult to be a female subject and also to be the ideal liberal subject. But my my take my take on that is is that this isn't a problem with women, as Rousseau might have suggested. It's a problem with liberalism. Mm-hmm. And that actually, if our if our concept of what it means to be a full human being is so constrained that we have to see ourselves as separated, atomized, and you know, stripped away from any kind of in relational context, then that is a woefully inadequate and, and to such an extreme degree that it, it effectively excludes that half of the human population that exists, or at least some of our lives in symbiosis with another human, because that's what gestation is. Gestation and early motherhood is an experience of symbiosis, which is radically at odds with the, with, with the sort of basic core tenets of liberalism. You know, it's an, it's an experience of merger, which is extraordinary and for which we have almost, we pretty much have no language within, yes. within the sort of liberal mainstream. Exactly. Um, and so, so if, if this is, if the liberal anthropology has, is, is so bad at accounting for the experiences of half of the population, then the answer, the, the answer isn't to try and fix the biology of, half of, of that half of the population, such as to make it possible to fit us into the liberal paradigm. It's to change the liberal paradigm. Exactly. And, and I think to me, this is, that's, yeah. that's probably the nuclear core of reactionary feminism for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is this is essentially what we're experiencing at the moment. You know, this is this is why, you know, the the, the main brand of feminism, the mainstream woke neoliberal feminism is essentially trying to shoehorn women into the role of the of the liberal individual, which is essentially a man, you know, or at closer closer to a man than a woman, you know, it's not even a man, it's someone completely stripped of any ties to, to their biology. And, you know, because women are closer to nature, just because of our, our inherent, you know, the complexity of living a female life, the timelines, the pressures, the, the, essentially the, the burden of, of gestation, like you said, um, it's, it's almost impossible to do. And, I feel like um, you know it's it's a bit of a trap to to try to retcon liberalism onto onto us rather than the other way around. I completely agree. I completely agree. You know, and it, it does. Although I, I should say at this point that I'm I'm immensely grateful to all of the efforts that all my feminist foremothers made to you know have have me not exist as a as chattel. You know, to be handed from handed from patriarch to patriarch. You know, I kind of appreciate that and the the degree of autonomy I have in my life. You know, I I quite and I quite enjoy pursuing the life of the mind. You know, I, I like working. Um, I also like being a mother. Um, these are these are not conflicts which it's necessary which it's ever easy to resolve. You know, and the it's a, these are live questions that I wrestle with all of the time. But um, one of the things that's very clear to me is that um, these are not questions which can be resolved by, um, by abolishing female biology or even pretending that it's possible to abolish female biology. Because at that point, you end up in a position you know, within Western liberalism, which is, which is 
separable from the Chinese Communist Party one by barely a fag paper, which is mm. to say you know, an, an understanding of feminism which is fundamentally anti-natalist. Now, I think it's, it's, pro it's probably no coincidence that um, women's liberation has coincided with a radical tanking of the birth rate. Exactly. Because the, the, the autonomous liberal subject that we're all celebrating as, you know, the, the kind the, the ideal default human is not one which has relate the kind of symbiotic relational ties which are um, which are a core part of being a mother. Exactly. I mean the, the ever perfect individual is um, is also kind of tied to the market in the sense that yes. you have to to be a perfect producer, to be someone who's worthy of the employment at Facebook or other, you know, another pantheon of our of our age. Um, you need to you need to make that your priority. And to also be the perfect consumer, you need to be the perfect individual because you know, the market doesn't relate to you on any other level. They're not they're not talking to families, they're talking to you, the the person with needs and you know desires that are being created every day by this uh this great propaganda machine that we're all hooked into yes absolutely i think um you know the it's the aspect of the human condition which is concretized by motherhood which is to say the fact that we belong to each other and not just to ourselves um, is fundamentally at odds with everything that you just described. Um, but it's also, you know, it's not just present for mothers, you know, it's, it's literally true that I belong to my child, you know, especially when she's in utero and especially when I'm breastfeeding, it's literally true that, I, you know, I don't just belong to myself. I mean, it was, it's a very physical experience as well. I, mean, you know, I, I would, I would routinely wake up in the night a few seconds before my daughter woke up wanting milk. You know, that's 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 some, that's that's widely documented. I have I have one friend who's still breastfeeding her toddler and the and this her, her daughter would go a couple of days a week to a childminder. And my and my friend, even though she was a couple of miles away physically at the time, would always know when my when her daughter was hungry because she would experience a milk letdown. Mm. And this is and this is this is this is a phenomenon which has been well documented. It happens. You know, the symbiotic connection between a mother and a, and a small child is is not something which is which we have language for, but it's real. Um, that said, you know, these are, these are not the only kinds of um, interdependencies which exist. You know, it's, it's also true that men experience those sorts of in relational interdependencies. They're just less, perhaps less um, animal. They're, mm -hmm. less, they're less physical, but it's, it, it's, it's absurd to suggest that, that men have no need for love or, you know, find no meaning in family life and belonging. You know, that's that's obviously not the case. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously not the case that humans of both sexes um, prefer to live in an atomized state. You know, that that condition of alienation is, is one of the things which is driving um, our uniquely crazy brand of 2020s politics. So this, you know, the this this sort of dramatic fiction that we, we've all embraced, that relationality is, is kind of an optional extra or is something which can be can be monetized and marketized as, you know, a consumer good, you know, is, it's it's fueling our crazy politics. But it's also just it's just a lie. Um, so, you know, if there's a if there's a wider political argument to be made from from my reactionary feminism you know, and wanting to recenter women, women's biology and, you know, the the politics of motherhood, you know, at, at the heart of human social life. It's about saying, well, it's not just, it's not just mothers and babies. It's all of us, you know, we all belong to each other. And, and we have to, we, and we have to make a positive statement to that effect. Um, because otherwise, otherwise it's, that's going to be taken off us and sold back to us. 
um, and things are just going to carry on getting better. Yes, and it's going to be sold back to us in, in kind of this, yeah, in this hyper-real form, like like OnlyFans, or um, which which is which is successful because it adds one more ingredient from the relational stack, um, and it also yes. mixes it in with uh, essentially slot machine logic with you know the yep. 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 rewards. So it's it's this chimera of of you know impulses that people have. But it's essentially it's not even masturbatory it's it's sub masturbatory because you're you're not you're just kind of tickling a few of your needs but you're not really getting these things because they're they're hard to get you have to be a certain type of person to kind of refine yourself socially to go out there to, to you know you know go interact with a female of the species to you know to become the kind of person who can have a, a good relationship and i feel like people who are dependent on only fans for their for their interactions with women uh they're they're starved of this they're ne they never really get to grow this this type of um yeah this type of talent because it is it is a talent you need to face rejection you need to you need to you know better yourself um and and it's uh and it's really it's really tough because you know the, the real satisfaction and the real challenges and actually having these uh, the relationships that lead to you know to fruition that you know maybe lead to children maybe maybe you know bring us back from the from the cliff edge. Yeah, and and that that sort of relationality also comes with costs. Um, you know, you can't you can't belong to other people and have other people belong to you without a degree of commitment. You know, which is radically at odds with the only fan what what you call the slot machine model. You know, you don't you you don't get to pay to play. You know, the idea that I could Airbnb my, my, my role as a wife is, is self-evidently ridiculous. Um, exactly. you know, not, not, because, not, not because it wouldn't in principle be possible, but because my, my husband and my daughter would get pretty pissed off pretty quickly, you know, and, and, not, and, very, and understandably so. Yeah, and this is essentially what uh, what you know a lot of mainstream feminism uh, tries to sell as uh, as motherhood empowerment. You know the fact that oh, if if we just get state sponsored childcare, uh, that that kind of solves a problem. Whereas if we can just uh, we can just sort it out, we can store the children with these uh, women from Guatemala, and then you can go off and be the be the individual that you always uh, wanted to be. Um, but then this also ignores you know the whole relational component that it's not interchangeable who takes care of your children and for how what what amount of time and the, again the, you know there are acutely difficult trade-offs to be made there um i mean I've, I've tried to i've tried to sustain for the last four years you know, to the best of my ability that sense of that sense of slight symbiosis with my daughter and there have been there have been times more recently especially under lockdown because i've had to work you know in order not to end up having to sell the house and there have been times when that's been really intention with with my need to be doing things other than looking after my daughter um you know that's a that's a moving top that's something which that's something which millions countless women wrestle with every single day and that you know it's there are there are no one-size-fits-all answers all you can really do i think is to try try and maximize your ability to work flexibly such that if your child if your children really need you then you're able you're able to make the decision to prioritize them and that's that that's the best sort of general answer I'm able to give, um, which which sort of which, which leads me to conclude that actually you know the the answer isn't to try and fix childhood such that you can outsource it to women from Guatemala. The the the, the best solution, the best feminist solution, which doesn't involve just trying to go back to this sort of radical separation of working roles between the domestic and the um, employment sphere, which is just that's that's not a genie that's going back in the bottle even if we wanted it to. 
Um, so so we, we, we just need to can that idea, you know, unless, unless, you know, except for the very wealthy who are able to make it work. Um, the, the, the answer isn't to try and fix childhood or to fix women, it's to fix work. Exactly. In yeah. as much as we can, just to, to radically rethink work in the context of what it means to be a relational human. And particularly in terms of the obligations that, that that implies when your children are young, you know, and that will probably that will probably be more true for women than it is for men, just because that um, that that sense of relationality and that bond is more intense. And I, and I, I, I you know, don't at me on that. <laughs> it is. It just is in almost all cases. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, this is this is a whole nother, you know, Pandora's box about our our insistence that uh, that women and men can be uh-huh. tr- treated on, on equal footing in every sphere of life, you know, from from egalitarian sex norms, which are another disaster to uh-huh. uh, to everything. But I think we can we can park this and I will definitely take it up on, our, on the next time. But before mm-hmm. before I let you go, um, there is one question that I want to ask everyone on this podcast. And I know you haven't been warned so this is this is not this is not it's not a scary question no worries um is there any thinker or writer that you are especially fond of but you feel that um they're not really getting their their time in the sun people don't really know of of uh, of their thoughts you know of, of their writing uh and that might deserve you know a little shout out living or dead doesn't matter uh but someone that's influential um and you think should be more influential can i have two of course, have as many as I want. <laughs> uh, the, the first I want to propose is William Ophels, who is not well known, but should be. Um, he's, uh, I think, one of the most interesting writers on post-liberal ecology and politics. Um, he's, written, he's written a trilogy of books on politics in the age of scarcity, in which he argues that the, the technological age of abundant resources must inescapably come to an end because we're going to run out of resources. And when we do, um, most of what we think of as progressive politics will will unavoidably come to an end with it. Mm. Because um, liberal, liberal politics, as we know it today, is premised on the idea of unlimited growth and boundless resources. Um, he's his, his most recent book is called Plato's Revenge, and it sets out, you know, not without some prop, not without some, I don't agree with everything in it, but so, some phenomenally interesting ideas on, on, on where, where politics and policy might go next, you know, with, with consider with hefty reference to, to the ancient world. Um, it's, it's very worth a read. And I think he's, he, he's, he's not widely known. And he should be. And the second is uh, an Indian writer who I'm just, just reading at the moment, um, Nirad Chowdhury, um, who writes, he, he writes about the from the perspective of an Indian given a classical education within the British Empire, and who then lived through the collapse of the British Empire, visited Britain, and he's he's I mean he writes like an absolute angel, and he has he he brings a perspective to the disintegration of a culture and an empire, which I think is perhaps more relevant than ever to the world that we're living in today. So I, I would recommend that anybody anybody who wants to to go slightly off the beaten track um, and there's a, a and and explore some underrated perspectives on the world as it is now. Should have a look at William Ophuls and Nero Chowdhury. Okay, perfect. I have this is this is new to me, so this is exciting. Uh, I will I will have a look. Um, thank you so much, Mary. This was a lot of fun, and yeah, I can't Likewise, wait. Thank you for having me, Alex. Perfect. Can't wait for the next thank one. You.
If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 